I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Friday, July 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is getting an upgrade this weekend as it debuts a new three-digit number for calls and texts. The new number is 988, and the hope is that the shorter number will be more memorable during a crisis. Underscoring how important the service is, the latest numbers show that one in six calls to the hotline go unanswered, so it's more important than ever to get people connected. Brianna Abbott, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what to know about 988 the new National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number. Next, recent news out of the field of xenotransplantation. Two brain-dead people had pig hearts transplanted, which offered doctors a chance to use new infectious disease protocols designed to help ensure that pig viruses aren't transmitted to patients. This is all leading up to plans for the FDA to allow clinical trials for pig organ transplants. Amy Doxer Marcus, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, another 40-year high, inflation has soared to 9.1%. Driving the increases have been continued high energy costs, but also rising food and housing costs. Rachel Siegel, economics reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for the nation's most challenging economic problem. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We recognize that by moving from a 10-digit to a three-digit number, there's going to be better access for individuals, which also means more people are going to be able to reach out for help and support. Joining us now is Brianna Abbott, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Brianna. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about some interesting changes coming to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. On July 16th, it's getting a new number. It's getting a three-digit number. The hope is obviously that it'll be a lot more easier to remember, especially if somebody is in a crisis. So the new number is going to be 988. So you can call that number. You can text that number. It's getting away from the longer number that we used to have, obviously, although that number will still be in effect. So, Brianna, let's talk about this new number and then uh, how important this number really is. We're getting some numbers about how only one in six calls to this lifeline were ending without reaching a calendar, uh, a counselor. So just kind of underscoring the importance of how, how useful this thing is. But, Brianna, uh, start us off with the big changes, the change to 988. So the biggest change that's happening is, like you mentioned, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is getting its new three-digit number on Saturday. It's going to be at 988. 
And like you mentioned, the hope is that the number will be more memorable. And so if someone is having suicidal thoughts or a mental health crisis, or if someone that they know, like a loved one is having such a crisis, they can call that number and get connected with a trained counselor for help. The Lifeline has been active since 2005. There's about 200 individual call centers across the country. There's 13 national backup centers. This is going to increase to 17 of those by the end of the summer. There's been an influx of federal and state money going into this very recently. Yes, definitely. So there is a lot of federal money. It's something like $432 million that is going into this. And you hear from the agencies that run the Lifeline is that historically it's been pretty underfunded. They've had some staffing issues in the past. And so the hope is that there is a new influx of federal funds to sort of really reinvigorate this response network. It seems that overall rates are down from a peak back in 2018. But still very, very recently in the last couple of years, we're seeing that rate tick back up. The suicide rate overall in the U.S. increased by about 30 percent from 2000 to 2020, peaking in 2018. So that means 2018 was the highest year and the last two have gone down from that. But you're also seeing suicide rates rise among specific groups instead of just overall. So while it's down a little bit from the 2018 peak, there's still definitely a, a long way to go. The unfortunate statistic is that one in six calls to this suicide prevention lifeline end without reaching a counselor. I mean, that's some millions of calls in a, in a time span that they looked at from 2016 to 21. 1. 1.5 million calls were abandoned before they were answered, but just really underscores how useful and how necessary this is. Definitely. And in those years from 2016 to 2021, the annual call volume actually increased by 92%. So these centers were getting a lot more calls just year over year than they had in the past. And about one in six or 15 to 17% of them, the caller actually hung up or the call was abandoned before they actually reached a counselor. And so we don't necessarily know why these calls were abandoned. Either they were waiting too long or maybe they changed their mind or someone came in the room like we don't really know but a lot of officials and experts sort of really highlight that when someone is in crisis they need a response quickly and some of the data suggests from vibrant emotional health which administers the lifeline that about 80 percent of those callers to the national crisis line who do hang up do so after waiting two minutes or less and the average speed of answer is 45 seconds so that's pretty fast but um, we definitely still there's there's room for improvement and tell me how it works because obviously you're hoping or, or even the call centers hope to answer somebody locally so the first calls are routed to a local crisis center if they can't pick up there it's uh, sent to a backup national center tell me a little bit about it and, and some of the states involved in this because some states like illinois in particular have, ha- have had a tough time keeping up with a lot of the calls so the calls are routed to local crisis centers based on area code, which is pretty important because area code is based on the area code of like your original phone number. And so it's rooted to the states. And officials say that answering in-state is preferable because that way the callers on the other end, the counselors, better know about the local resources in the area in case sort of you need additional help. Like those counselors are are better equipped to handle and sort of tell you where to go. And different states have different levels of in-state pickup rates, which is sort of how how they describe it or an in-state answer rate. 
like, for instance, Arizona, which is one of the best, answers 92% of their calls to their crisis center within the state. But then you have, like you mentioned, states like Illinois, where almost three out of four calls were answered by the backup centers and out of state because they weren't able to answer it in-house. And our review also found that in 11 states, most of the calls were routed to the backup centers because the local centers could not handle the volume that was coming through. For a lot of people, this it really works. They found out that 90% of suicide of people who have been surveyed, who texted the lifeline and, you know, call, like it's been very helpful for them. You know, maybe not completely all the way, but it is something that really helps at the moment. So we'll see how the rollout goes. As you mentioned, Saturday is the big day for all of this. 988 is the new number for the uh, uh, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Brianna Abbott, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The NYU team really focused on the fact that, okay, how do we improve the testing to make sure that that doesn't happen again when we go back into living patients, potentially in a clinical trial? Joining us now is Amy Doxer Marcus, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Thank you. Well, let's talk about a pair of pig heart transplants we just had. This happened in two brain-dead patients. There's this movement to uh, get more into these pig heart transplants, this uh, xenotransplantation, as it's called, a transplant from animal organs to humans, to help solve the shortage of organs that we need for people that need them. And uh, we've seen a lot of news regarding these pig heart transplants recently. These last two that we did, that they did out of uh, NYU Langone Health, they were looking especially on how to improve tests for pig viruses in case these organs have viruses in them. So, Amy, tell us what happened in this last case and then the broader picture, because the FDA is planning to maybe allow some clinical trials on this stuff. Yeah, this is an interesting moment in an effort that's been going on for decades I think it really got accelerated a lot by the fact that there was a pig heart transplant in a critically ill man named David Bennett back in January. And that was done under an emergency authorization from the FDA. And it was done with the hope that it would extend his life. And he did live for 60 days, but then he passed away. And the scientists who were involved with his transplant discovered 20 days after his surgery, that there had been a pig virus in the pig heart that was transplanted into him. And there's a lot of screening that goes in to ensuring that viruses in the organs, that you don't choose a pig that has a virus. And so in the wake of that, the NYU team really focused on the fact that, okay, how do we improve the testing to make sure that that doesn't happen again when we go back into living patients, potentially in a clinical trial. And so that was part of the goal of these two transplants that were done in brain-dead individuals. Let's try to create some new tests. Let's improve our protocols. And they took a number of steps to do that. What kind of pig viruses are they concerned about? Things like that that, that could possibly infect a human. So one of the viruses at the top of the list is the virus that was found in the pig heart that had been transplanted to Mr. Bennett, and that's a pig virus known as pig CMV. There's a human version of that virus, but there, it's a very common virus that's found in pigs. So that's, And they had tested for that virus, but the tests weren't sensitive enough to pick it up because it's a virus that can be 
hidden in the tissue. The pig didn't have any kind of like active infection, but the virus is hiding in the tissue. And when you take that organ and you take it out of the pig and you put it into a new immune system, a human immune system, and then this is a patient that's very immune compromised and has to have a lot of medications to ensure that his immune system doesn't reject an animal organ. That's kind of like a, an environment in which doctors would be very fearful for viruses in pig organs to wake up. So they put pig CMV at the top of their list, but there's a number of other common pig viruses porcine lymphotropic herpes viruses, porcine circoviruses. These are very common viruses in pigs that they also right. tested for and a group of retroviruses known as PERVs that are in the genome of all pigs. They had a whole list, but those are some of the viruses that are at the top of the list. Amy, tell me a little bit about these possibility of these clinical trials that could be coming on board because we're short on organs across the country. More than 100,000 people in the U.S. are on the national waiting list for organs. 6,000 people die each year. I mean, we talk about this every time these things, these crazy transplants come up, right? So what would these clinical trials look like and how close are they even? It's hard to know how close they are because the FDA hasn't really given a timetable. There are some groups that are approaching the FDA and, and have approached them in the past asking for what sort of additional data would be required in order to start clinical trials. If the clinical trials do eventually start, they would be very small and they would be very controlled. One difference that doctors distinguish between what was done in the case of Mr. Bennett and what would be done in a clinical trial is that in Mr. Bennett's case, it was an emergency authorization. This was really a Hail Mary to try to extend his life. In a clinical trial, you're going to have an opportunity to be more rigorous in selecting the kinds of patients that you admit. They'll set sort of standards for inclusion and exclusion. You're going to be following them really carefully, and it's going to be supervised by, you know, the regulatory agency. So it's a much more controlled environment than when you have a critically ill person and that, you know, when you're doing something very risky and experimental because you have no other alternatives because he might die at any moment. So it's, it's a little bit of a different approach, but the FDA did hold a public advisory committee meeting last month for two days in which they sought advice from experts. They also made their own presentations and asked questions, and they raised a lot of the issues that would be on their mind. They said that they were aware of the critical need for organs and that animal organs could be a potential source in the future, but they did talk about the public health risk of using animal organs, and they really want to make sure that all safety precautions are taken, and that was a subject of great discussion. Amy Doxer Marcus, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, 
A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fighting inflation is one of our administration's top economic priorities, which is why we have taken action to lower the cost of living for Americans, millions of Americans. Joining us now is Rachel Siegel, economics reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. Well, more bad economic news for the country. Inflation continues to be at high levels. For June, we saw prices soar 9.1%. This is a new 40-year high. It just keeps going up. No end in sight, really, for now. And uh, a lot of this is being driven by higher energy prices, but the cost of food is up. The cost of housing is up. It's a, a really big problem right now, and the Fed is doing anything that they can to adjust this by raising interest rates. We could be signals uh, of more interest rates coming. They've said that they plan to do that. So, Rachel, what are we seeing with this? Even though the latest inflation report is somewhat backward looking, we already lived through this period. We know how high prices were in June. It really came as a pretty brutal reminder or a signal even that the attempts that the Federal Reserve has taken so far to lower inflation are not working. There was no way to read this report and say, okay, well, interest rate hikes are starting to show up here or we're starting to see some cooling here. It really signaled everything in the opposite direction, which does not bode very well for where things are headed. Jokingly, right, the only thing that inflation has not touched has been the Costco hot dog, as officials say, you know, that's not going up, it's staying at $1.50. But, you know, all kidding aside, it's just uh, really tough to get a handle on this. And the Fed's been doing what they can. The Biden administration has been trying to do a lot of stuff, but it really just kind of goes to show how little all this stuff really affects it. I mean, the rising of the interest rates is really the main tool we have to reverse inflation, but they're doing this at a risk of a recession. 
That's exactly right. And the other problem with interest rates is that they're really blunt. In some ways, they're tremendously powerful and they're the main tool that the Federal Reserve, which is also tremendously powerful, has to fight inflation. But interest rates work really broadly throughout the economy. They can't target specific pockets of the economy that might need a little bit more help. And they also can't solve a lot of the problems that the economy is facing. For example, we're still in the grips of all of these supply chain issues. We're still in the grips of repercussions from the pandemic. There's a war halfway around the world in Ukraine that is making so many of these problems worse. And interest rates can't be a solution to that. And so I think that accompanying this question of, you know, how forcefully does the Fed have to work to hike interest rates? There's this other problem of, you know, if they raise rates so aggressively, but that tool isn't actually a match for the kinds of problems that we're seeing, that could spell other consequences too. Yeah, the Fed raised the rate by three quarters of a percentage point in June. They're saying that that, that they'll have to do it again. They're going to talk about it later this month when they meet again. There's a possibility of a full percentage point rate hike. I mean, that's what people are talking about right now. Something that I've been paying really close attention to since we got this latest inflation report on Wednesday, and there was, you know, an initial question that I had in my mind over whether or not this would be enough to push Fed officials in that direction towards a full percentage point hike. So far, the comments that we've seen from Fed officials have actually not leaned in that direction. One of the governors of the Federal Reserve Board, Christopher Waller, today said that his preference was still for a three quarters of a percentage point hike. That message was echoed by some of the presidents of the Federal Reserve banks across the country. And their answer, at least for now, is that they don't want to show a knee-jerk reaction to one inflation report. Now, there are lots of questions that come along with that. It's unclear if there's going to be anything that keeps pushing them in certain directions, if they think that there's just a lag to their policies that isn't showing up yet. But I guess we'll know for sure in a couple of weeks when Fed officials meet again. Yeah, there's other strong points in the economy right now, which is so weird why the inflation keeps persisting. But first things first, got to take care of these prices. We know that a lot of people had savings left over from the pandemic and those stimulus payments, but those things are quickly going away as people are having to dip into that. And it's just an interesting time, obviously, right? As we keep getting closer to the midterm elections, the Biden administration is doing anything they can to fix it. It's not working yet. The GOP is going to be making this a huge issue during the midterm campaigns this year. And so again, I mean, despite trying to get the economy better, it's also a big political issue. It's an enormous political issue. And in certain ways, the Federal Reserve operates in sort of a weird vacuum where they aren't quite as affected by those political wins. But inflation is the economy's top problem, and that makes it one of the top problems in the whole country. We're in a midterm year. Inflation has been a huge problem for President Biden's approval ratings. As you mentioned, Republicans are hammering on inflation issues going into the midterms, and in particular, putting a lot of blame on some of the spending efforts that congressional Democrats passed through earlier in the pandemic. So inflation is not just a huge political sense story in that way, but it's also a real litmus test for how people feel about the economy, for how people feel the economy is doing for them. And right now they don't feel like it's doing much for them at all. Rachel Siegel, economics reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. 
I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.